Today on The Orange Table, we're discussing social segregation on Princeton's campus and answering a question posed by Beverly Tom in her best-selling book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? I'm your host, Omar Farah, an editor with Daily Princetonian, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Victoria and Aisha. We're going to start with introductions from our guests today. Let's get started. Hey everyone, my name is Jovan. I'm in the class of 2023, and I'm going to be majoring in ELE. My name is Nick. I'm a rising junior, and I am majoring in the policy school. I'm Alexis. I'm also in the class of 2023, and I plan to major in the policy school as well. Thank you guys so much for those introductions. I think we're going to dive right into one of the anonymous confessions that we received. So, Victoria, do you want to start us off there? We'll just get some reactions at the start. Yeah, of course. I'll just read it out loud right now. This is a straight quote. I don't perceive them in any way, except that I would feel uncomfortable approaching them and joining, even if I see some friends there. When a group has something so obvious in common that I so obviously don't, I'm white, I find it even harder than usual. I have social anxiety to begin with, to work up myself up to interacting with them. I feel the same way, same way when I, for example, see the swim team, even though I have friends on it. I know that because I'm white, I'll probably still have the same underlying racial prejudices, although I've been trying to educate and recondition myself. But, but based on my best possible self-analysis, I think that community in a broader sense, not race specifically, is why I would feel like an intruder if I were to approach a large group of black students. Part of it could be more on the cultural side. They could be thinking that because these people are black, I may not be able to relate to them on a cultural level. So it may be harder for them to approach these groups of students. Like for example, if there was a group of Italians congregating, speaking Italian, I know that's kind of on the extreme end, mm -hmm. this example, I wouldn't be inclined to go approach them because how am I going to relate? I don't speak Italian, I don't really, I'm not a part of that culture. So that may be part of why when people see groups of black students, even though the black culture isn't that different, like there's no language barrier between regular, like the overall Princeton culture, there's still that uneasiness. I want to bring something um, kind of like what Victoria said. I want to like, I want to challenge us because I feel like we've kind of been, I don't know, like, agreeing with the statement which isn't necessarily bad but I kind of want us to challenge it in that when you think about like Victoria said when you think about how people perceive large groups of black students like like they associate a lot of stereotypes with us like they'll be like we're loud we're messy we're doing the most we're just like taking up a lot of space like in that sense and it's like we actually had um another confession that kind of said um basically like although they like perceive black students in a certain way they're like i always wonder like why do they always like segregate themselves or why do they sit together why do they do that they could have like a better experience if they didn't do that but then they also said but i never think the same thing when i look at a group of white students because honestly like i actually like there was this thing on like npr they put on their instagram they were like um they said i think they said seven out of eight white people wait is this right it was, i think it was eight out of ten eight out of ten okay i saw it on your story random fact like let me <laughs> let me go check my instagram story so i can be 100 percent sure 
like honestly it's kind of like why do people why do people look at black groups Mm -hmm. and think oh they're loud they're messy they're all these things when i can sit in whitman dining hall and a group of like freaking lacrosse boys will be like screaming apple fork and throwing an apple around their table with forks (laughs) right and no one's gonna say anything like but we're messy and loud and rude like what is that even so it's like so it's like basically i'm asking like i think we're being a little too apologetic um about people's feelings for black people because really i think i think a lot of times it's just like inherent bias like it's like implicit bias like they have some racist thoughts in them and think people just have a hard time coming to terms with that so what do you guys think about that that's a good point really good point i think i don't want to completely agree with this dude but at the same time as a black woman interacting with like certain groups of people whether it be like white men or white women i don't really have a lot in common with them so it's hard to start off that like ground relationship with them if i don't really have anything to approach them with so yeah, by default, I'm going to interact with Black people because they look like me, they have similar experiences to me, and that's just what I'm comfortable with. That's the best way I could put it, I guess. And Giovanni? Yeah, I, can, I can definitely understand that. If I was in a room of all white men, tall football players, I would definitely be uncomfortable. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with them, but just the fact that I'm the only Black space in the whole room I can, I would definitely feel like all eyes are on me because I'm now the sole representative of Black people in the room. And so whatever stereotypes or beliefs that they hold, it's all going to be placed onto me. So I feel like that's a source of some fear that people have. I guess it's interesting because I feel like this conversation and kind of the mentalities that we're expressing kind of fit into this conversation right now about like there's some people who want to talk about anti-racism in terms of like, you, have you guys heard of Jane Elliott? She's like the brown-eyed, blue-eyed experiment. Anyway, she's been like criticized because she kind of talks about race as if we're already in a post-racial society. Like we're one human race, we can all get along. And of course that's, I think where we all want to end up. Like undeniably, that's the opinion of all of us. We want, I don't believe that we can't all get along and interact in a meaningful way. I think that's what is important. I, from a biracial family, that's like a, an experiment I live every day. But that's not the reality that we live in right now, necessarily. And there are, there's distrust between communities to a point that needs to be bridged in some way. So I don't know, I just think that it's interesting to kind of have this raw discussion where we're admitting where we're at right now. Victoria's saying that she has trouble connecting. And I think that if to kind of <clears throat> hold up the position of a lot of white students, I think that they look at a group of black students and they're worried about saying the wrong thing. They're worried about, I, I, I've heard that expressed a lot, like the idea of not wanting to commit a microaggression against someone unknowingly. So I think there's, there's definitely things that need to be worked on on both sides in terms of bridging that gap. But on that point of kind of the like white fear of black groups, Aisha and I specifically discussed this before. I think in my experience, Black people and Black groups are very forgiving of of ignorance, in all honesty. I think that none of us, the cancel culture is not something that I see in my day-to-day life in the sense that if someone who I care about, someone who's a friend, someone who I'm getting to know says something or does something that I think is 
has racial undertones. I think that I've seen specifically like Black Rhythm Campus really approach that as a learning opportunity. And I haven't seen as much of a, an aggressive approach. So I really think like my invit invitation for people who are potentially worried about like engaging with certain groups because they have to navigate certain conversations around race, I would say people are, especially if it's not like something vile or aggressive or extremely deep rooted, I think most people are willing to learn with you and, and just kind of correct as you go. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think I wanted to ask Nick, like, what was your experience? Because you're like, you're from the UK. So I don't really know what the racial dynamics are like over there. So what was your experience kind of like coming over here, like, joining BAC, being part of a predominantly Black dance group, and how was that? Like, how did you kind of navigate that, like, as a white person? Like, how was it different from just, like, any other time at Princeton, I guess? I mean, so, before, like, being from the UK, I would say I'm more from London in terms of, especially when we look at, like, racial demographics, like, London is something completely different to the rest of the UK. Um, so, yeah, so that's one thing, and I would just say, in London, London's a very multicultural um, society and in the school that I went to, it was extremely diverse. I had friends from all different types of places, um, cultures. I think one difference um, with the UK and the US is that people of color in the UK, usually in my experience with the people that I've met, they, their parents or themselves usually were born in that country. So they have kind of a cultural connection to maybe that country. So for example, um, you know, a black person might be, I have a black friend that, who was born in Nigeria, for an example. And so she has a connection to Nigeria and she goes back to Nigeria. And so maybe someone else, um, someone of Indian heritage, they, their parents are from India. And so they go back to India um, regularly. But in the U.S., um, many Black people in the U.S., they are Americans. They don't have any other cultural connection. You know, they're just, um, just as American as the white people in the U.S. And so one experience, so I think that was something that already I had to navigate and to kind of learn and to understand that race in the U.K. and race in the U.S. works very, very differently. And um, so when I joined, I, I knew that I wanted to be in a dance group and I wanted to be in a hip-hop dance group. And so... I didn't really want to do any other style. And so BAC was pretty much the only um, group that did that. And I was very happy that, you know, it was also in a very authentic way where we still credit um, hip hop to black art. And um, in terms of like my experience being in BAC as a white individual in a predominantly black group, I've never ever felt like black people couldn't connect with me. But also I think because already if, you audition for the group and you're in the group already, you, you already enjoy hip hop, you already enjoy black art, black art. And so that's already something that we can connect on. With Aisha, we connect, we went to a concert together so we can kind of connect in terms of music. Whereas, you know, maybe in other contexts, you know, there might not be anything to connect on. Um, and so I think in terms of my experience being in BAC, it's been amazing, I have nothing negative. And I like to think that none of the black people in the group have ever felt um, that I've been hostile to them or, you know, anything like that. I did kind of want to narrow in on the idea of affinity spaces because I was writing a story last week for the Prince about um, the Black Leadership Coalition's list of demands for the university. And one of them is to create 
a black affinity space specifically. So I'm just wondering if anyone has any comments in support or any ideas about that. Can you elaborate on the black affinity space? What, what will it encompass? Yes. Um, if I recall correctly from their letter to the administration, I think it was very broad. It's just the idea that there already exists um, affinity spaces, so to speak, for the LGBT community, for example, the LGBT center, and then also for women in the women's center. Um, so I think they were just saying they wanted a space similar to that. And this is now on Eisgruber's desk and he has to respond to it. So I'm just wondering if as a journalist who's covering this, I can't comment specifically on what my opinion is, but the rest of you can go for it. Uh, I feel like people's first response is like, what's the Carlay Field Center for then? Um, but then they'll miss the point of that. And they'll probably go into the idea of black self segregating themselves, which is a really annoying argument. But can you, um, so when they mean like a center, it's, it's going to be something like the Women's Center, just separate? Yeah, from... I think it's, I think the reason why it's different from Carly Field is because Carly Field, especially recently, has taken on more of a role in terms of like creating space for international students and like more multicultural events. Yeah. So I think they're asking specifically for like a Black center. I think it's a good idea. However, if I were to play devil's advocate, then some people may say, okay, if there's going to be a Black space, Black designated space, what about other minorities like Asian, the Asian community or the Latino community? Do they not also have to get a space? And then others will then say, where, where is it going to end? We can break down the population into smaller and smaller minority groups. How many spaces are we going to have to create? Okay, I guess I'll be the counter argument to your devil's advocate. And I think it's like, like, I think people advocating for this black affinity space would be like, yeah, of course, there needs to be an Asian affinity space and a Latinx affinity space. And I don't really know the native population at Princeton, but if there is native people on, if there are native people on campus, then they can have a native affinity space as well, and so on and so on and so on. So I, I really do not care about people who are like, um, like this will just, this is endless, this could go on forever. But cause it's like, I mean, I understand the CJL's purpose is because the Jewish community has like different like needs um, that the dining hall does not like offer like cause the dining hall isn't kosher. And so I understand they need like a kosher food space but also the CJL, like when I went in there it was very obviously like a place that Jewish students could go and just like have space to be with other Jewish people. You know what I mean? Like they're just there having fun, I think reading books, playing ping pong, doing whatever they do. And they're just like, they just have a space to be together. And it's kind of like, why are we not allowed to do that? And I think, I remember Persis and I, um, I don't know if you guys know Persis, but we we actually tried to talk to VP Calhoun about this because we wanted to like get a black space on campus. We wanted, because I remember reading like um, Becoming, I didn't read Becoming, let me stop saying it. I remember hearing about Becoming <laughs> that Michelle Obama talked about the Third World Center. And I also know some Princeton alums and she told me about like Third World Center and how it was like such a great place. Like, I don't really love the name, but it's such a great place for black students to go and congregate. And it, they were like, they had the best parties there. Like it was so great, they had so much fun. And they turned into CAF, which I think is a great space, but it's also become 
a space for like every marginalized identity under the sun, if that makes sense, you know? And so I think it's important that each community has its own space. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, I feel like I kind of got off topic. I don't, <laughs> but like, I think you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, so, so I think it's important that each community has its space. No, I absolutely agree. I'm also literally reading Becoming right now, Aisha. It was right beside me. But um, I guess this doesn't specifically have to do with why are all the Black kids sitting together, but it is something I wanted to get all of your comments on because it's kind of happening right now. And I think with the <clears throat> BLC's demands to Ice Gruber, um, I'm getting the sense that right now with all the activism in our community and all the energy um, since George Floyd, since Breonna Taylor since all of um, the activism around specifically police brutality. I think that the administration is gonna have to provide a strong response in order to satisfy student activists. So I'm just wondering how you guys all plan, if you do plan to get involved online and just kind of how you see that back and forth going when we're not in, in person able to protest, for example. I just wanna make one quick distinction, I feel like Police brutality has always been a problem since like the beginning, since whenever the police were created. Right. Like activism started long ago, even before like Trayvon Martin and Eric Garner and stuff like that. The only reason it's becoming popular and noticeable now is because I guess there's this national outrage over George Floyd, which to me is, I don't understand the timing of it because it's always been happening like this, maybe because it was publicized on social media or whatever. The only reason the school's responding in the manner it has been is because of the optics and how they care that schools perceived, whether they were the Woodrow Wilson name change and other stuff, how they're going to treat activists going forward. I mean, it has to be, they have to be receptive to our ideas just because of the optics, but I don't know. For me, I don't know. Yeah, I feel like people have to apply even more pressure now than what was done in the past because the new cycle has already shifted. We're on to the next big story. Even though police brutality and racism and systemic racism is still here, it didn't go anywhere just because we removed Woodrow Wilson's name. Like all these problems still exist, but because optically and visually the university has already done its part, already got a pat on the back by national media, they're gonna feel those in the administration that they don't really have to actively do anything. So we as students really have to stop, start stepping on their toes even more and say, hello, we still want actual concrete changes. Anyone else? That one. I feel like this is like a kind of negative viewpoint, but I feel like at least now after, like, because we can't go back on campus, it's going to be a lot easier for the administration to ignore because I feel like it's a lot easier to ignore like a like a petition or emails from students but it's a lot harder to like um, ignore like physical like human bodies like in like protesting spaces or like if at least like I think like protests like are more visual are more visible like than a petition is because like you like have to see those people those people can be like posted on like a news article or something like that like they can end up on the news but a but a petition I like or at least to me is like less like visible and less um in your face and um just easier to ignore so i think the administration might have an easier time like not 
admitting student demands and just being like, will we change the name? So we don't have to do anything else. That's true. I think one thing Princeton does very well is like displaying their symbolic changes. They did that really well with the Woodrow Wilson name change. Um, beyond that, like hiring more black professors or creating safer spaces for black students on campus. Now that we're virtual, I don't see them. Let me not say nothing, but I don't see no, them doing that. No, go there. <laughs> that's, the only reason they would do that if it, if it served their own self-interest. And now that they've already done what they've done, you know, we have the first black with the valedictorian. They don't really have to do anything else for us. We're asking too much, according to them. You know. But let me not say anything if I get in trouble. No, I want to say something. I don't want to bring in a certain individual's name because I don't want to publicize anything about them. But I'm thinking about like, how the university is talking about they think they're so they think they're such activists they think they're doing such good work by removing Woodrow Wilson's name you know plodding themselves in the back Ice Gruber and his little um his little mate um but in the same like within like was it like the same month maybe they're literally like sending a week, maybe. A like week? two weeks like like not that far apart like I think it's close yeah. to a month I agree yeah. yeah, and they're literally telling us like, oh, we can't, like, free speech is, like, protected under, like, even, like, even, like, free hate speech is protected under, like, school policy or something like that. Like, they're telling us that they can't, um, they can't, like, punish a certain individual for using the N-word um, on social media against other Princeton students, I believe. And so I think it's just like, how are you going to be like, oh, yeah, we're making such headway. We're doing all this work. And in the same sentence, tell like the Black community and, and Black students like, oh, I'm sorry that this white student, this white man was like, he literally said, what did he say? It was, it was a very like. The niggas. It was, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a very interesting way of using the term. He, he called us the niggas. And it was just like, really? And then not only that, but they had VP Calhoun send it to us, a black woman. Mind you, VP Calhoun barely sends us emails. Like I, I literally, like in my time, like while I was on campus, I probably got maybe one email from that woman, like mass email. And, and it was signed by Eisgruber, Joe Dolan, who usually sends us emails and all these other people. I'm gonna call y'all out. Y'all gonna see this too. But no, because like, this gets me off. Because how are you gonna be like, oh yeah, we're making all this, how we're doing all this work by removing Wilson's bum ass name? And and sorry, I'm cursing, but and <laughs> tell us that you literally do not care and be like, oh, I'm sorry that this student called you the niggas, but we simply do not care and we simply cannot do anything about that. And have yeah. a black woman send us that email. Like, what? My take is like, first of all, if you're gonna use that word, but you shouldn't. At least use it properly like it doesn't even make sense grammatically but i mean they do that just to message you like these emails even at the statement of solidarity i don't care about the statement of solidarity i don't care what you have to say because you don't need it it's just a waste of my time i didn't even read it i, I didn't read it i'm gonna be honest i didn't read it i'm not gonna read anything they send because it doesn't matter it doesn't, it doesn't affect me it's not going to do anything for me it's not going to change the fact that kids on campus are going to do whatever the hell they want to do without any repercussions but I don't know, that's me being pessimistic. My apologies, but 
I kind of want to connect what we're talking about right now to the conversation around why all the black kids sitting together because I feel like there's a really strong connection in that when black students see that the university well when they feel that the university is not going to protect them from people who are using the n-word in a very violent way his his statement also tried to claim that students who went to private schools were less violent it was a really ugly stereotype so I think that black students feel when the university doesn't protect them in those instances that they need to create affinity spaces. They need to, in some ways, have some sense of solidarity because if I can walk around campus and someone say vicious language to me, that, that scares me in all honesty. I think it scares a lot of students because the line has not been drawn specifically as to what can be said to students of color and what cannot. I just want to say, correct me if I'm wrong, like that the school had backtracked on what they said before in the new post, like in the, like the response to that statement, because I thought before they had said like hate speech would not be tolerated, like that had been written somewhere for people to like see, like someone had sent that to me. I don't know. I think, then, I think you might be right, actually. I think. Yeah. And then when this like statement happened and people want to change for that, the school said now that we don't, we like protect the first amendment like freedom of speech yeah it seems like the policy right now is that if i remember correctly as long as it doesn't as long as the speech does not infringe upon the ability the university's ability to function which is very broad language um mm. it, it's fair game so i think i i've as a journalist i've sent questions to the administration about what that means and i would reiterate it right here i would like the university to explain what they mean by that when they say impeding the university's ability to function. What, what is the bar? Because students need to know. Otherwise, I don't think that they'll feel heard by the administration in any way. I always like to do this at the end because our time is kind of wrapping up. But if anyone has any other comments they want to make about anything that was said or just any, anything else that's happening on campus right now that involves um, race relations, anything that's weighing on their mind, go for it. Um, I had one thing, one thing that actually I was really interested to see going back to Princeton, but unfortunately we won't be able to see that, is how people would behave and how they, how things would change going back in September, especially considering I've seen so many people um, posting and putting stories, especially non-Black people who I know have been problematic in the past and, you know, who definitely, you know, are not living up to the words that they say they are. And so I think that's something that I was excited to see um, because I think the secondhand embarrassment that I experienced just reading their stories, knowing that they themselves are problematic was something very, that weighed on me a lot. So I was very interested to go back. Um, and I'm curious to hear if you guys agree, think that people will, things will happen and how you guys feel about certain people, maybe that you're not aware of that have been problematic, but so many people um, posting who may not be living up to their words. Yeah, I, I have to say I definitely agree. I, I feel like this, if we were back on campus, the situation would be a little tense because all of these people with problematic histories and pasts are and have been getting exposed and they might feel under attack or under threat even though it shouldn't, they shouldn't really feel that way because they should just be acknowledging their actions were wrong and they should change. So I think there was going to be 
some, not, I don't want to say drama, but things going on with that. I also think people like seldom have the same energy in person. So I doubt there'd be a lot of confrontation or interaction with those people. And that's what I would think. And okay, this is kind of more on the pessimistic end, but I think there may be more performative action with no real genuity to it because of the climate we're in where people are so hyper aware of what's been going on and all the issues that we've been discussing that they're gonna be super, super careful to not slip up and to not appear as if they hold racist beliefs or their prejudice, even though they may actually harbor those things, they're gonna try and act a certain way just so that they don't get called out. Yeah, I agree with you, Yvonne. I think like a lot of people, had we been on campus, would be honestly just a little bit smarter about their racism. I like hate to say it like that, but you know, not slipping up when black people are around and then doing the same thing when all your like white friends are there and just like making sure they can't, they're not in spaces where they would get called out for it. Yeah, just to tie this conversation of performative activism to kind of the main topic and then make our exit here. I think that I would call on white students, non-black students in general, when they see black students in the future in large groups, say hello, kind of try, if you have a perception that you think is um, somewhat rooted in stereotypes, maybe take a second, evaluate that. And then beyond that, step in when you see something that's wrong. I think that oftentimes when racist things are said or um, stereotypical things are said, we're not in the room. You're in the room. So you have the responsibility to say something and to stand up in the way that you're saying that you want to on social media. So I think that is a wrap on episode two. Thank you guys so much. You guys have all been amazing guests and I really appreciated this conversation. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you.